There's nothing quite like a discussion of the rapture to get a Thanksgiving conversation really moving. Uh, and I will admit to instigating that conversation. Uh, it was just a couple days ago, and we were uh, sitting around the table, and um, several folks there were wanting to talk about what it's like uh, to be a Christian and to see someone who professes Christ publicly but does not actually seem to want to abide by Jesus' teachings. What do you do with that? And uh, a, a, a really vibrant conversation ensued, and so I uh, somewhat innocently uh, decided to offer a question that I have been wondering about for this last week, which was, uh, so the next flight you're on, the next flight you're on, do you want a, uh, a believer or a non-believer in the cockpit? Uh, and, you know, for a certain uh, group of Christians, the answer is, of course I want a believer in the cockpit. Um, but then I said, well, what about this week's gospel we're about to hear from the gospel of Matthew? Because the writer of this gospel wants to make things really clear and literal, right? Two are working in a field. One is taken, one is left. Two are grinding corn. One is taken, one is left. Two are in a cockpit. <laughs> this could go both ways. Do you want believers or non-believers? I kind of I want to split, actually, cover both ends. Because uh, in Matthew's Gospel, contrary to what you might have read in the Left Behind series... No, well, we don't know, right? Matthew's not clear about who is staying and who is going. Who's the righteous one? We just know that when the end comes, it will be like a thief in the night. Which is uh, kind of strange, considering the culture and the world we live in. It's, it's as if the, the liturgical structure people... <laughs> hey, Ruth. It's as if they didn't get the memo that we have gone from pumpkin directly to peppermint. Right? Uh, in, in, and it's, it's strange. In the, in the hymns that we're singing... I've heard nothing about sugar plums or chestnuts roasting on an open fire. In our readings today, there was no baby, not even a hint of a baby. And yet this is what we do every year. Every single year, this is how we start with everything that is ending. And it's actually a, um, a particularly Anglican thing to do. 
Now, many Christian traditions start Advent, this time of preparation for Christmas, with this text. This year from Matthew's Gospel, but, but it's particularly true for Anglicans. For several hundred years, the field of Anglican moral theology has worked in this way. We often begin with the end in mind. Now, there are traditions that uh, their moral theology is founded on the avoidance of sin. But for Anglicans, our moral theology has been founded on what God has created us for. How we are to be in this world as the created living towards God. And then we orient our lives towards that. We begin with the end in mind. And in the case of today, we begin with a very strange ending. And it's got a particular focus in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, as we will find out as this year unfolds, Matthew's Gospel um, is written from... Uh, a very clearly articulated conflict between dangerous people and vulnerable people. And so what, uh, what, we, what we hear today is the beginning of what will be heard over and over again. And while I know it's really easy to, to focus on uh, who else will be left behind, I think this text in Matthew's Gospel is actually directed towards us. Because this conflict between the dangerous and the vulnerable have real and lasting consequences. As do our actions and our inactions. And so this is a, a text that, yes, it looks to the end, but it doesn't place the end after we die. Right? It's not only there. It's also in this very moment. It's what Paul's writing about to the Romans, that our salvation has never been nearer than this present moment. Those, those signs you sometimes see, the end is near, they're right. And so that's why we begin with this in mind. There's a, a story you may be familiar with about Alfred Nobel. He was the 19th century Swedish chemist and inventor, and then later philanthropist. But that, that really, that arc only tells a small part of the story. Uh, Alfred Nobel was known by many things uh, in his day. In fact, he was known worldwide. But he was chiefly known for one of his most famous inventions, and that was dynamite. 
Uh, you see, uh, nitroglycerin, which was available during the day, was highly, highly unstable. And so often when uh, people used it uh, for, say, uh, blowing up some rock to create a space for a railroad to go through, there was lots of death along with the destruction. And so uh, Alfred Nobel then found a way to be able to safely uh, detonate these explosions. And it made him very, very wealthy. Uh, I mean, he was, he was wealthy and accomplished. He had over 350 patents all around the world not just in terms of explosives, also in, in silks and other things. And so it afforded him um, a pretty incredible way to live, which changed uh, quite suddenly one day. It was in 1888. And uh, his brother Ludwig Nobel was traveling in the south of France, was in Cannes. And Ludwig suddenly died. And the newspapers that uh, picked up the story in France, well, it was a case of mistaken identity. It was Ludwig who died, and they thought that it was Alfred. And so the front page of the paper the next day had this headline, The Merchant of Death is Dead. And that's the newspaper that Alfred Nobel picked up. The first line read, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways for more people to be killed faster than ever, died yesterday. Can you imagine what that might be like to read? Well, interestingly, this is not at all what Alfred Nobel expected to read of his own death. And so uh, he actually shifted what he did and especially with the vast majority of his wealth, which was extensive. And so upon his death, he gave prizes. Prizes in, it started with five uh, categories in the physical sciences and, and physiology and literature. And in something that stunned much of the world, Alfred Nobel, who had over 90 factories that created explosives, gave a prize to the person who that year had contributed most to the peace of the world. When he was offered the rare opportunity to read his own obituary, Alfred Nobel had this opportunity to live and to die with the end in mind. So what would that be like for us? To look at the relationships that form our lives 
personal, familial, political, economic? What would it be like to look at those relationships and decide to live with the end in mind? Because if that end is always as near as the next moment, we are to be ready. So what would it be like as a, as a partner? This is one of the few relationships that we actually define with death being the end. What would it be like to bring that end into this moment? What would you need to say to your beloved? What would you need to do? What would you need to ask for? What would you need to forgive? Or a friend. We don't often think about our friendships ending. But what would it be like to take that end and bring it into this moment? Take just one friend. What would you want to take up knowing that right now? What would you finally want to let go of and put down? What about being a parent? Whether your child is 5 or 55, I think many of us have considered what it is like at the end. What do you want to make sure is passed on? What do you want them to know? What do you want them to not let go of? And then in, in this Gospel of Matthew, if you, if you turn the page and get into this next chapter, chapter 25, it's a doozy. Because Jesus is going to ask some very, very pointed questions. Among them, uh, he holds up our neighbors, our neighbors who are hungry, who are thirsty, the stranger, those who are naked, those who are sick, those who are imprisoned, and says, what did you do for them? If this end is brought to this moment, what are you doing now? And so how do we give ourselves our attention through uh, sleeping bags and tarps and socks and warm clothes? And through rides to doctors and time spent playing chess? Through advocacy? And through addressing long-term structural inequity.
how will you and I begin with that end in mind? I understand why um, the theme of the season being uh, peppermint and eggnog, things that I love, are so appealing right now. Because it's dark and cold, and sometimes all we want to do is to get warm and stay asleep. And Jesus knew that too. Which is why at the end of his life, he was imploring us, Paul is begging us, Alfred Nobel is witnessing to us to wake up. Wake up to all around us, especially those who are in clear and present danger. Because yes, the realm of God awaits us at the end, but the realm of God, the world we know to be true and possible in our hearts, is waiting for us right here and now if we but live with the end in mind.